Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week with my co-host, Kizzy Joseph, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. The book, Women Rapping Revolution, Hip Hop Community Building in Detroit, is described as an attempt to illuminate the important role that women have played in mobilizing a grassroots response to political and social pressures at the heart of the city's ongoing renewal and development. Today's guest. Today's guest, Rebecca Ferruja and Kelly Hay, are both professors at Oakland University located outside of Detroit in Rochester, Michigan. They spent seven years in community with The Foundation, a Detroit-based women-centered hip-hop collective. Kelly and Rebecca's fieldwork in writing this book shows us how crucial it is for us to engage with outside cultures with a strong level of cultural competency and authenticity. The Detroit hip-hop women trailblazers speak and build relationships with give us glimpses of Black womanhood and ways Black women are dismantling the hip-hop gender status quo. Kelly and Rebecca also share how this journey has challenged and involved their own perceptions of feminism, especially in the realm of academia. Overall, it's a really fascinating, multi-layered conversation, Michelle. Exactly, Kizzy. They say they were not trying to take anything away from or appropriate the culture, but only with the permission and direction of the collective to document something so it doesn't go away and morph into something else. Kelly and Rebecca, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you both today? Well, the sun is out. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, am, I know that, I know, Rebecca, you were telling me how you were getting the kids outside. You know, isn't it nice to have nice weather for them to go outside in? Oh, it is. I think it makes a huge difference, even just having my son be able to take a break, um, you know, when he was getting a little distracted and he just ran around outside for like 15 minutes, you know, and came mm-hmm. back in. So I think there's like a, a whole new energy here that's brewing now that it's finally spring. So we're good. We're good. We're, we're healthy and, you know, safe and very, very grateful, feeling very privileged right now. Mm-hmm. So I know that the common link for both of you besides this book is Oakland University. Mm-hmm. But um, for those who don't know you, not Kelly, I know you. I mean, I haven't seen you in a while, but I know mm-hmm. you. And I met you in part through Oakland University. I know you're originally a California girl. But mm-hmm. <laughs> how did you get from California here to Michigan? Do you mean in terms of this in, in the world, in terms of my research? Well, because I went no, to graduate no. school to 
Yeah, and in terms of, I mean, you know, many people would say, why would someone move from California? You start out in California, oh. end up in Michigan. And I see. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, it's graduate school is what led me here. Um, California mm-hmm. didn't have the particular kind of program that I wanted, so I ended up going to Ohio State. And when I went on the job market, I applied to jobs that were nearby. There just weren't that many in California. And once I got here, to be honest, um, I used to think that my dream job was University of Texas at Austin or a UC. And no, I love Oakland because our colleagues – are amazing and our curriculum is amazing I think and it's always growing and I just there's a synergy here that I adore so you know it's not California weather but I've come to love Michigan mm-hmm. yeah but did you ever you know coming up see yourself being in the Midwest no never <laughs> I imagined that I was going to be in Santa Cruz by now <laughs> um, very near the beach uh, but that just didn't happen <clears throat> Well, yeah. Our stories are pretty different. <laughs> I, I know. So I think I read, Rebecca, that you, you have uh, roots in Windsor? I'm from Windsor. I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So born and so, raised in Windsor. And uh-huh. um, I got my master's at Wayne State. I was always, you know, I always came over here. I was always on the Detroit side, like my whole life. By the time I was a teenager, I was taking that tunnel bus across the border, mm-hmm. going to shows all over St. Andrew's Hall and, you know, doing my music thing and shopping and everything over here. And, and then by the time I was an undergrad, I um, was heavily invested in Detroit's, like, techno and rave scene. Mm-hmm. So I did that whole thing. And then um, I got my PhD at the University of Iowa, and I was just, you know, doing, I would have always loved to come back to the area, but my first job took me to Kalamazoo, so I taught at Western Michigan for five years. Hey, um, I love Kalamazoo. And then, <laughs> yeah, well, my husband's from there, so we still mm-hmm. go there on occasion. And then this opportunity presented itself as Oakland, and honestly, I felt like, I hit the jackpot when I got the job. Like, I was very excited, and I loved, loved, I was just thrilled with the possibility of moving back to the Detroit area and settling on this side of the river this time and, and just what that, the potential there for research about Detroit music and culture was just so exciting. And I know so Michelle, you, know, you, go ahead. Yes, Kelly. Uh, when I met Rebecca, she interviewed uh-huh. with us, and she was 900 months pregnant. I mean, she interviewed like a couple of weeks before she had her baby, mm-hmm. and it was my job to take her to the sure. dean's office, and she's like, oh, mm-hmm. we're going to walk them all. Get in my car. There is no way you're walking anywhere. Uh, oh, wow. Did you like it? Okay, let's keep this, this, this non-stressful, you know, and, and, and your phone like, okay, what if, what if I have to deliver this baby, you know? Oh, I was like, yeah, I can't it was only twelve days before my due date. That's funny. Oh, wow, well, that's so funny. Oh, I don't, oh, I can just imagine it because I've been with people who are like that pregnant, and you go like, okay, and they'll, and they'll make a face or something, and you'll go like, uh oh. Oh, yeah, well, you know, yeah. Becca weighs five pounds when she's not pregnant, so it wasn't like that. It was ten pounds maybe pregnant, but it was just mm-hmm. a waddle. It was like, oh, Lord, we are not walking. <laughs> now, you know, I know that, Rebecca, you've written a couple of books that, that deal with, you know, uh, techno, dance, but 
Kelly. That was my first one, what, yeah. Uh-huh. What I remember about first meeting Kelly was <laughs> that, you know, you had a kind of cool. I mean, you know, like I, so to see you be involved in a book with, on hip-hop, I'm not surprised because you were always, you know, like sort of in there. You know, like you were, you were one of the cool kids. How did you two connect? Did you connect over music? Well, you know, Kelly had already been at OU for a while when I got here, and um, and then I'd, I'd been here a couple years, and I was wrapping up the techno project, and I was really, you know, when I was younger, when I was coming over here and going to all these techno events, I was very curious as to what was happening on the ground hip-hop scene, but I didn't really have a way in. And so when I returned in 2009, came to OU, I was like, I just want to see, like, is there anything going on with women and hip-hop in the city? And I opened up the Metro Times one day, and there it was. It said, you know, events happening, whatever was coming up in the next week at the old Miami, and it said Tuesday night, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Foundation, Women in Hip Hop. So I was like, I'm just going to go check this out. And it happened to be the two-year anniversary party, and it was just so cool. And, you know, all these people here and all these women on the stage, we could really see, and I thought it was great. And I was like, well, maybe there's something here. And even if not, this is super fun. I want to come back. I think mm-hmm. the second or third time I was going, um, you know, Kelly and I are colleagues in the same department at OU in the communication and journalism department. So I invited Kelly to join me. I said, hey, you want to come check out this hip-hop thing? And she was all for it. She was super enthusiastic. I know she, she was. was. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we went. And, and Kelly, you like telling this next part of the story. So I'm gonna hit Oh, my God, it here. was so funny <laughs> because I'd never been to the old Miami. Uh, you know, I've been in the Cass Corridor a lot, but I just didn't, oh, you know. I didn't know the old Miami, so uh, we go there, and you know how big it is outside, and I see, first thing, three of my old students that I had like 10 years ago, they're like, Dr. Hey, and I'm like, oh, Lord. Uh, Are you there? Oh, I thought I clicked (laughs) on you. So so we started talking to the students, and there was another colleague who came with us, and Beck and I were out on the patio, and he came, she said, come in, come in, you have to see this, and we're like, what? You know, so we go inside, and there's a young man up on the stage during the open mic section, the backpack, I mean, he's really maybe 21 in a minute, and he had just laid down some, you know, untoward language, like the bitch and ho stuff, and the DJ cut Mm -hmm. the music and said, son, we don't do that here. We respect women, and we had just never seen a gender check in a hip-hop club. We're like, what? Mm-hmm. You know? And so we're like, mm-hmm. oh, Becca, mm-hmm. we have to study this. There's something going on here. And so he mm-hmm. left the stage, and then he came back and did better, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was very interesting. So we learned one of the rules of the night is no misogyny, and we had no clue that that was a rule until we stepped into it. So then yeah, I brought one... Piper. Yeah, go ahead. Uh-huh. Sorry. Well, we're going to come back to but you know what? One of the things... Too, that um, that Kelly and I I do, and I noticed that one of the people who wrote about your book was someone who had written about Jimmy and Grace Boggs. And you know, mm-hmm. in one of Jimmy's, in fact, back when because we met around Detroit summer, and mm-hmm. when I first got involved, one of the things that in Jimmy's book, Pages from a Black Radical's Notebook, like he had talked about young people developing a culture of their own, coming up with a language. And, mm-hmm. and, I mean, Grace had often talked about, like, in some ways it had, had been very prophetic of him, that he was talking in some ways about what, what we saw happen with hip-hop. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did any mm-hmm. of that ever, like, sort of cross your mind, Kelly, as you were going through this? To, to oh, that? yeah, it's like, 
cultural movement and you know jimmy has even though he was long gone when i got here he was mm-hmm. i felt a special relationship to him because i've been reading his work forever and then when stephen ward ended up being somebody who was a reviewer for us and i then found out about his book it was just like everything that jimmy imagined about cultural organizing and that it has mm-hmm. to be in the own idiom and the own place um, is just exactly what we found. Like Piper Carter could have been an offspring mm-hmm. of Jimmy and Grace. Um, and her mm-hmm. whole orientation is from the ground up in youth first. So, yeah, mm-hmm. we saw like what, you know, Jimmy uh, theorized and also what the people that really got hip hop going in their 70s as a, a site of resistance. We saw all that. And in, in resistance plus, you know, they're building something. It's more than fighting, it's creating. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, you know, we know that, that uh, you know, and you're talking about how there was no misogyny. And something had happened mm-hmm. with hip-hop. Because, you know, you remember when, when Queen Latifah first hit on the scene, it was like all hail the queen, you know? Mm-hmm. And then something happened. <laughs> and then something happened until yeah. and here's Piper, okay? So when you met Piper, what did you, you know, what did you well, think? I went up you to go Piper. ahead, Becca. <laughs> <It was great. laughs> and I, I had a business card on me, which I haven't carried now in years. And I went up mm-hmm. to her, and I was just super nervous. And I shook her mm-hmm. hand, and I told her who I was, and I was from OU. And I said, I would love to interview you. Now, at the time, I had no idea the myriad, you know, mm-hmm. things that Piper is involved with in the city. So she just like, gave me this look, like, who is this woman? And <laughs> she was very much like, uh, interview me about what? you know, because she had so much going on. And I was like, about this. And she was like, oh, okay, maybe. And then I never heard from her. So mm-hmm. I said, you know what? You know, having done my ethnography homework, I said, we're just going to keep going back. So this was in the summertime, and we just kept showing up. And eventually, you know, we, we kind of stood out in the crowd there, as two middle-aged white women showing up every Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually, you know, she was just became curious, like, really, who are you guys, and what are you, what do you want to do, and, and so, you know, it took a while to get it off the ground, but we just had to start absorbing and learning what was happening, like, even those connections you and Kelly were just speaking of, you know, it took some years for us to really understand, like, the depth of those connections and the different ways in which they traveled, um, so we interviewed her then at the beginning of 2012, and you know, kind of like the rest is history. I think it was then the fall of 2012 that she asked us to officially become part of the foundation mm-hmm. and attend meetings and help with events, and it grew from there. Yeah, it was after you had Huxley. Remember, we didn't come back until October. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. what happened is, yeah, yeah, Becca had a baby during the course of our field work. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. I mean, really, we were going out, you know, all through the pregnancy. People would touch her mm-hmm. belly and say, oh, it's the hip-hop baby, you know, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, you mentioned, you know, something Mm -hmm. happened after Queen Latifah. Well, there was this rule, and women were always the hosts. But in the summertime between, you know, 12, two of the hosts weren't able to do it. And so guys kind of came back in, and they just, like, took over the whole philosophy of it. And we were Mm -hmm. there one night where this visitor was up on the stage, and he was literally pointing at women and going, there's a fat bitch over there, and there's a, and Piper uh-huh. lost her mind, got the mic, uh-huh. and started saying things like, ain't nobody, you know, a bitch here but your mama, and just, you know, went right at, at the banter, uh-huh. and it was uh-huh. like, wow, and it was then that she said, we need you guys to join because we need to get this back, and then, you know, the sure, former yeah. host came back, and, and it kind of regrouped, but, 
any time it wasn't, you know, held in place, there would be all kinds of things to pressure it and get that no misogyny rule to loosen up because people just couldn't help themselves wanting to throw down the language. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, I, and there was, it seems to be like with hip-hop, like, cause you, I can remember, I mean, you know, sitting down mm-hmm. when, you know, hip-hop was like really like underground and it wasn't really big. And with Grace, and Grace had read something about it in mm-hmm. the New York Times, and, mm-hmm. you know, with what they were talking about, and she had seen a couple of videos, and she was she was concerned that that was what was going to happen from, in fact, she had asked my son to make her a mixtape, you know, mm-hmm. of, of socially conscious mm-hmm. hip-hop. And she had, mm-hmm. and being graced, she had done her, her deep dive into it to where, you know, by fall she was like cool mode grace. You know, she knew, and <laughs> she was really thinking about it and talking about it. But um, then that commercialism came in where you not only mm-hmm. saw this strong voice of women talking about ladies first to where mm-hmm. women were calling themselves bitches and hoes. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, no, no, you know. And it changed the culture. And, I mean, I have seen Piper, and I've seen what Piper does, and I've seen what they've done at some of these things. To where it is, it's like there's no misogyny and, you know, reclaiming the queendom. Mm-hmm. And, and what's so, interesting, too, Piper says about how some of these kids don't know how to do it unless they're following mm-hmm. that model of the commercial industry, you know? So there's a lot of teaching mm-hmm. going on, teaching moments. Mm-hmm. And unteaching. They have to unlearn that stuff. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Because there's just so many juicy treats out there. Like right now, I mean, the mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you know these street rappers, but Sada Baby and T Grizzly are these Detroit mm-hmm. East Side street rappers that are just mm-hmm. brutal. I mean, they make Eminem look tame in terms of how they mm-hmm. talk about women mm-hmm. and violence and you know blood and guts and that sort of thing. And the kids love it, but it's not the lyric, it's not the message as much as it's the sound. When when people write about what they like, it's the sound. It's because mm-hmm. they don't take a break or breathe. They just rap and rap and rap and rap, like no hook, no any, no chorus, nothing. Just blah, 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 blah. and they think that that's skill. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then Trisha Rose and Hip Hop Wars, and when was that? Two thousand. Like when did Hip Hop Wars come out? Eight or nine says right. The one of her lessons in that book is don't give in to the beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great to have cool beats, but we also need to be aware of the messaging happening right Lita I had talked to a young woman who was in in Dallas actually and she was saying she was talking about with the beat that if she wanted to make it at a certain way there was a thing about the beat and the language and what she had to do you know to do it mm-hmm. and forgetting about what she had gotten into it about what she mm-hmm. wanted to say it was like about making that money and you know mm-hmm. that happens too and so many industries. And one of the things that you guys talk about is about Detroit. And we know, and I, and I guess especially Rebecca, we know. I mean, mm-hmm. if you, people, how many people come here for the techno festival? I mean, oh. and where you see so we have DJs who go all over the world, and it's a sound that has come from Detroit. There's a credibility that has come from Detroit. Mm-hmm. And we know that Detroit has always exported really great musicians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. About, right, going back in the jazz era, people moving mm-hmm. to New York, come here. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you find so many people, and the path went through Detroit, but then they moved and they went on. I mean, mm-hmm. what did you 
see, you know, from all of your other experiences. And then when you two were sitting there at the old Miami and you were seeing that, did you, part of you say like, gosh, I hope this doesn't leave here too? Or why mm. is it still here? It wasn't ever a question of is it going to leave here. It was I wish more development was here so they could blow up here because what happens mm-hmm. is there's no music industry here anymore. And so when people get to a certain level, they leave. Like Book Brown was ready to blow up, so she went to Atlanta where there was a whole mm-hmm. market of producers there. Um, you know, like oh, Big oh, Sean, his producers took him in other places, you know. And mm-hmm. so it's, I don't think that it's it's – I think people need to come here to the talent. Um, so it's it's more of there's nothing to get people to the next level without mm-hmm. some industry here. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, yeah, right, there is that. It is unfortunate that people do end up leaving. But I think what's really right. neat about what's going on now, though, there's enough happening because of all the technology we have now that you can have, you know, to some degree, strong underground scenes, all over, you know, the country and the mm-hmm. world, and it's so easy to connect with people. And you know, like Miss Corona in Detroit has huge fan base in, in like Germany and in France. And so at least now there's, it's there's some some more sort of ability for people to mm-hmm. gain recognition elsewhere and still stay here. So I think you know, that's right. a really great thing. And there's a weird kind of different ageism that happens other places versus here, like. Corona was selling places out in Berlin and all over France, and they didn't care how old she was. Here, mm-hmm. it's like people in their 20s see, you know, the de essences and the ills and the coronas as they're OGs, mm-hmm. man. They're old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, what? <laughs> they're amazing. Yeah, and that's that's not a Detroit thing. Like, that's a American thing, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. read, a lot, read a lot of literature that talks about our relationship to... Um, we're one of the places in the world that, you know, more than elsewhere that is really like our, our social lives and so much about our lives is, is governed around age, that we only hang out with people who are the same age as us. You know, there isn't as much intergenerational activity mm-hmm. happening in this country right. compared to other places. And that's what makes Detroit so amazing because the thing that struck me from day one is how mm-hmm. intergenerational it is. When we went to shows, mm-hmm. particularly at the Commons building, I mean, that's where I met you when the coffee house was happening. Well, that mm-hmm. same space is where the foundation was forever, right? And so and the the mothers and grandmothers and uncles and aunts that would come to these artist shows, was like it was family. It wasn't just, you know, random people buying a ticket. And so to see the whole everybody working together from people's mothers selling their swag at a show to their Mm -hmm, grandmothers, mm -hmm. you know, coming with a cane was just a beautiful thing to see. And you don't get that in the commercial uh, Mm -hmm. world when you go to a show. Like, we've gone and been really old to see Chance the Rapper and Clint. (laughs) Like, one one kid turned around and said, oh, it's so great that you brought your kids. And it's like, we didn't come with kids. We're just here, you know. So it's like, you don't don't get that when you go to a big stadium show. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, what is it, though, about Detroit? I mean, there's this message that's coming out when you see what Piper, you see what Mahogany is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have met people, like I've talked to T. Miller, who, like she says, mm-hmm. even though she has performed all over, there's something about coming home mm-hmm. to Detroit that recharges her, her batteries. Adrienne Marie Brown, who's everywhere, but she says mm-hmm. that there is something. She said coming to Detroit 
mm-hmm. and particularly, knock on wood, being a part of Detroit Summer, how it changed mm-hmm. the trajectory of her life. There's something in the soil, there's something mm-hmm. in the community, in the neighborhood that really is groundbreaking. What is it that you, and because your book also talks about, you know, how hip-hop and how it's helping to um, build community. What is it that you see besides that? I mean, I love that, that thing, how you said how here you went to the same place that has a history of the Detroit Men's Coffee House, but here's mothers, here's grandmothers, there's an intergenerational. But what is it that these people who are so creative and are really Mm -hmm. thought changers, you know. You want to go back up? You, yeah. you can start, Peelick. Okay, so I think that there is this, and you know, we have a chapter about this. In fact, Becca theorized it the most. There is a, a, a an urgency to claim your right to the city here that I, maybe because it's been so troubled and contested and there's been mm-hmm. such a movement history here, but people, you hear them say, this is my city, 18-year-olds, 30-year-olds. There is this this is my city and I'm invested in what's going to happen to it. And it happens at the level of the neighborhood association, the, you know, Mm -hmm. the cultural center, the gallery kind of site, those conversations Mm -hmm. were happening as much as beats and rhymes. Um, And it's in, you can't listen to the music without hearing that no matter what artists, like if it's the men, super MC or valid, Will see or Bryce Detroit or any of the the women that we feature, no. they all claim Detroit. In fact, there's anthems everywhere in their music, okay. and and it's it's like claiming it now is to situate themselves in a past, and it gives them a trajectory to a future that that's all about Detroit. Um, and mm-hmm. and all of them talk about the the power of Detroit and how it influences their music. I think you know that just the, like Kelly said. The, the deep history of movement building in the city, which, which to be honest, when we first went to Old Miami, we, we, we couldn't see, you know, that connection by going there. It was by talking to people and doing a lot of deep hanging out that we were like, oh, wow, it's when Kelly started to say this is about more than just, you know, women performing. It's, it's a, this is part of a, a movement. It's a movement project. So I think that's just very, you know, historical. Even people writing contemporary work about the jazz age in Detroit talk about how even then the artists there, and I think because it's not a a commercial center, because it isn't LA, um, you know, or New York, maybe there's just, it sort of gives the city some, some freedom, you know, all this creative freedom, everything from, I mean, essence will talk about the water, the impact that living by the water mm-hmm. and the Great Lakes has and, and the space mm-hmm. in the city and how all these things, along with movement building and the, the musical history of the city, I think just collectively creates some, you know, as one generation sort of has an impact on the next. It's just mm-hmm. this um, generation of collectives of people that are very, I don't know, brilliant, but like, you know, really forward thinking mm-hmm. outside of the box. Mm-hmm. And, and so many of them are so. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. And there's so there's so many allied networks that hold them all together, like the Allied Media Project, mm-hmm. Detroit Summer, mm-hmm. and you know Foundation all had very similar things in common. They all got stimulus money back in '08 when Obama was president, and they all built together with Detroit Future Schools and that sort of thing. So there's a mm-hmm. network of organizing, and it mm-hmm. didn't matter to us if we met 
kids that called themselves street rappers or kids that were dying to come through the gallery. They knew who the box people were. They knew who Jimmy mm-hmm. and Grace were. And that's mm-hmm. different. You know, you don't go to other cities and kids have these, these political, um, you know, mamas and papas that they look Awareness. up to as much as, you know, the musicians. So I think that's different, too, is that there's, there's, there's a leadership uh, sort of uh, mm-hmm. commitment here that comes with the music. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take our first break right now. We're going to come back. We're going to. I want to build on that and then ask a few other questions. So we'll be right back. Okay. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. And we're back here on Collections <laughs> by Michelle Brown. I told you. <laughs> you know, and it's something. And to, I can't tell you, not only here, but when I come across transplanted people, like in Brooklyn and Atlanta, I mean, like you said, that part where there's that history, that history of movement pe- movement building, and that, that yeah, there's that boss, even if it, people who weren't, didn't know them at all, but there's that right. having come through the bar system. And, and there is that part about movement, and people are talking about it. Um, I was um, part of a group that was doing some transforming, uh, transforming power grants. And one of the things that I found was so interesting is there's still that sense of community and things that are happening, but people who came from certain, you know, various like this, it's almost like a family line that I'll find people and even people who have passed through. I mean, Alexis Pauline Gomes, the day that Grace died, you know, the week after, she and I were at a conference together. And um, we started talking about the box, and it was like we had found a family member. And we hmm. could talk, both talk about what had been lost, you know, and then what we were going to continue to do as far as community and movement building. Now, when you two rolled up into the, uh, to the, into the old Miami, <laughs> and you're two white women, you know, mm-hmm. and here you rolled up mm-hmm. in there and you tell me how initially Piper didn't like you, but did you worry that, you know, people would think that you didn't. I see that Piper and Mahogany both did um, forwards to the book. Mm-hmm. But how did you you get to that to where often one of the things that I hear from young people is like, you know, we have to reclaim our narrative. We're, we're tired of having people tell mm-hmm. our stories. But here you two rolled up in there, and they knew you were committed because you kept coming back, even though one of you was very pregnant at the time. 
<laughs> how did you break that or or build that level of trust to where you know there's one level that you can have where people will tell you what you want to hear, but the other part is where you really get down to the nitty gritty. Just no, being okay. there. It's okay with Kelly. Go ahead. Um, no, no, go ahead. I mean, first of all, like understanding, right, the history of appropriation in this country with everything, you know, music, mm-hmm. culture, whatever it may be. So having a deep understanding and awareness of that. So, and, and you know, we're not coming to sort of pillage or to take and make our own or anything. And then, honestly, like commitment, you know, um, people sort of came and went and we just stuck with it for the, for the long haul, you know. Um, and I see why I was suspicious because she's just like, who are you, period, you know. And to be honest, like, I was really surprised when I first started going down there that there weren't more, like, white people like us who just thought this was really cool and were just interested in being there, you know, um, research project or, or no research project. So that was sort of surprising to me. Um, maybe, you know, so a bit of naivete there. But then we just we just kept coming back. We kept wanting to make it better. You know, we were very clear in the beginning what we wanted to do, and if they weren't interested, we weren't going to pursue it. Um, so I think we've talked a lot of time about how this took us seven years, which is a lot longer than we thought it would, but how grateful we were for taking that time because it's that's just that's how you how you learn and how you grow and how you you know don't appropriate. So, you know, having the collective's blessing, doing the work as part of the collective, you know, working at events, trying to put together events. Um, and then we published some articles about it first, you know, and we did a lot of member checking. Kelly's so good. Like, I just get busy sometimes. She's great at checking in with everyone and, and sending them our stuff and being like, here's what we wrote. Give us your feedback before it's published so that voices are accurately represented. Um, when we would do things like work on analysis, you know, I sat with the essence and I'm just to this day like love, love, love her her spoken word poem um, on my Detroit Everything, which she then, you know, put, mm-hmm. put um, wrapped on a track too. So just having them involved as much as possible, right? T. Essence was even a co-author on an article we wrote about that piece um, that's now part of the book. So mm-hmm. Those are strategic yeah. ways we try to do it. I don't have anything that different to say, but it's just a question. We just were there, being there, in, in not trying to be an expert. You just have to be there and you have to listen. And this was the first time in my life where the majority of the community that I stepped into were black women. And I've been around black women, but I've never worked exclusively with black women where I was the, 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 the person who was not in any kind of dominant group at all. And so just learning a new language, like we didn't know the language of hip hop. We had to, we didn't know the idiom. We knew the obvious stuff, but we didn't know things like whips and eyes. And, you know, we had to learn. It was like learning a new language and we couldn't speak on things that we didn't know. So it was all about listening asking the right questions and only after we I mean literally we didn't get invited to join the collective for almost a year and we were mm-hmm. there six months before we even interviewed Piper so once people just kept seeing us there uh, people in the audience would be like uh, artists would be like oh look at all these chocolate women oh and the two vanilla ones you know because we were there all the time 
Um, and they mm-hmm. would notice us, you know, because we weren't there to make trouble, and we didn't bother people if they didn't want to be bothered. And, and we see this as we're not trying to take anything. We're trying to document something so it doesn't go away um, and morph into something else, and then there isn't a trace of it anymore. Um, and we did get checked. There were people that assumed uh, that we were going to make big money off this book and leave the artist behind. And it's like, oh, please, no, that's not how academic books work. Um, and that, you know, that's not art. This isn't a general audience book that's basic books and, you know, you know we're going to get negative royalties. And we've already, you know, part of the collaboration is sharing. And so we will share the royalties mm-hmm. with the community because they made the work possible. Now, you said how when you came in, some people recognized you. Did you find that at a certain point both of you had to leave the professor at the door? But then as you went through and, you know, you're presenting some of this to people who are in academic settings, how did you then pick it up and sort of like educate academia on what you were doing? Oh, that's an interesting question. And this is bigger than this because Piper, is, for me to talk about this is like connect Piper to the word feminism. Piper has a, uh, a conflicted relationship to that word. And if ever I would and introduce not just her. Piper. That, no, not just Piper. I'm just, but yeah. I have a personal story with Piper, right? Mm-hmm. And so she just never wanted to be called a feminist. And so she would always introduce us as professors in the context of mm-hmm. hip-hop shows, and I hated it. I didn't want to be mm-hmm. a professor in that context. So mm-hmm. she'd say, oh, so you don't like being a professor in this context. Now you know how I feel about being a feminist. And so I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll own it then. I'll be a professor today. But so it was like, I think people, a lot of people didn't even think of us as professors. They were just these two white ladies that were there. The artists that knew, mm-hmm. I don't think thought about it that much. But for, for me, I can't speak for Becca. It was more like convincing other academics that what we're doing is legitimate. Like, really? You're studying hip-hop? Well, what's that got to do with anything? Um, and, you know, why would you do that? And is that research kind of a thing? So that's when I would fully step back into the professor role, make the arguments for like, well, hello, yes. Um, and mm-hmm. it's bigger than, than hip-hop anyway. So, um, you yeah, know, that's kind of how I come into it. It was like it was always a loose hat, and sometimes it was on, sometimes mm-hmm. it wasn't. Like the only time I would be aware of it is if I asked a question or framed one, but otherwise – it was sort of like that that hat was just not very conscious to me until someone made it present. And I just want to put make a shout out to, you know, the other academics who do similar work to us who've been extremely, like, valuable and helpful in us being mm-hmm. able to even cultivate this project. You know, there's a bunch of other people who are studying really cool, you know, artists and communities across the country and the world, like, you know, with, with hip-hop, um, you know, or electronic music or, you know, whatever else it might be, you know, pop, rock, you name it. So having that sort of home of academics who do that work, who also, you know, kind of like us, are just sort of more more fluid in the community and in the ivory tower than some other people are, I think, um, was a great support, you know, um, helping us sort mm-hmm. of build up our, our language and our work so that then we could bring it to a larger audience that maybe just didn't understand, you know, how some of these the stuff works. So, but yeah, it always threw me off. Whenever Piper called us doctor, you know, I was always like, no, mm-hmm. don't. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because... Know, she wants to introduce us that way. It's like, no, drop the doctor. You know, <laughs> you know, the doctor's for this. Let me be this. Did you find, though, you know, because, you know, just like you didn't want to be called doctor. She had to sing about feminism. But did you 
redefine or, or change how you thought about feminism. I had talked, I don't know oh, if you know, yeah. Dree Cooper, who, you know, she oh, calls her, yes. her Dree calls her hood feminism. And, and if you call, just went straight up and say, oh, you're a feminist, she go, no, you know, I'm talking about hood feminism. And mm-hmm. did you change, did your perception of what feminism was for women in the black community is and how it was different from what you have been, you know, perceived as feminism. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, it was like taking it out of an institutional context. Um, This was, you know, like Bell Hook says, feminism is for everybody. And so even if people didn't Mm -hmm. use the word or identify with the practice, they were building communities and redefining women's roles and pushing women into activist kind of agency. I mean, the the organizing is part of the big thing that comes out of our argument is that cultural organizing is doing politics. Um, And that's what was happening from the beginning. And so uh, youth connection, intergenerational connection, not using the language of misogyny. There was never, uh, sometimes like the pipers of the world were overt about it, but people that didn't use that in their everyday toolkit just kind of came about it more indirectly. And it seems like that there was a sense, and this is a collective thing, I think, that in public you do not go after men, right? You do that at home um, unless there's a big violation, right? So you're not hypercritical mm-hmm. in public. You keep it kind of in the community when you have that conversation. So learning how that works and when it doesn't work was something that stretched me. And, and there's, a, there's, there's one thing that you can learn a lot from black feminism when you're a white woman but it's not yours, right? I can't claim it. So we do hip-hop feminism because it's important, and hip-hop feminism is what young hip-hop um, practitioners and scholars and uh, poets and whatever are claiming and, and using to, ex- to articulate their experience. So we have to do it because it's important and relevant, but it's not ours to claim and own. And that's what's hard is, is saying, yes, there's a sisterhood here, but there's also a history of racial violence that got attached to gender that we can't forget about. Um, uh, and so Piper's been really good at schooling us about Margaret Sanger and all these people that I think mm-hmm. of, I thought of as heroes um, as who were just as colonial as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we did some focus groups, which was really insightful too, you know, that we sort of um, spent some time talking about in our gender chapter. And, and that was really enlightening too, to learn firsthand about, you know, why not feminism and the ways in which, you know, for a lot of the people who are part of our project, you know, said that, well, for me personally, they would say, um, race trumps gender as far as, mm-hmm. like, social identity categories go. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't claim feminism. I'm, I'm more so committed to racial injustice, you know. But then what was cool is, like, lots of people's opinions change. You know, we all grow and develop over time. So... It was kind of cool how over time some people were just thinking about themselves and the work they were doing differently, you know, whether it was claiming activism or feminism or coming up with... Mahogany was very forthright about that. Yeah. What What did Mahogany have to say? She told us in the beginning that she resisted the gender work and um, taking positions mm-hmm. on that and then, uh, you know, being around not us per se, but people like us and sharing the conversations and reading together. She's 
totally changed um, and now sees herself as uh, definitely uh, one that's comfortable with feminism and who's trying to create, and this is her language, you know, trying to create a new paradigm. Um, And so she would fluctuate between feminism and gender justice. Piper was much more comfortable with gender justice. Mm -hmm. So even if feminism wasn't the reigning conversation, there were other ways of thinking about gender issues. They just didn't want to go, they they see it like feminism is very exclusive um, and not inclusive enough. Um, Like, for example, if you move to gender justice, then it's more trans um, open than feminism, which is very woman identified. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what were the biggest intersections that you found, though, between feminism as what you had brought to the table when you first got there and at the end of this seven year, what you where you were seeing feminists? How did it affect you? I used to be a theory dog. I used to read the kind of feminists that uh, no one could understand, like that you'd say a sentence out loud and you think it wasn't English. Um, and I'm over that. Um, I, I really, I used to be so theoretical in terms of, it, to the, it's almost to a point of being arrogant. If it wasn't theoretical, it wasn't good. Um, and I don't know if you ever read Barbara Christian's um, essay, The Race for Theory. It is very much about, it's a white people's race. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But uh, theory used to be a sort of an empty gesture, I think. Um, it, not that theory isn't important, it is, and I'll always be interested. Mm-hmm. But it, it wasn't working for me. To me now, I'm more interested in starting from the ground and finding theory hooks along the way than starting with the theory and letting it frame everything. Um, and the language of theory can be intimidating and it can be sexy, and I'm just sort of over it. Um, I'm more <laughs> interested in what's going on that I can put my hands around and then figuring it out from there. So I, so I used to, you know, so it's, it's grounded now instead of imposed, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for me, I feel like to some degree, it's always been kind of, it's always been grounded. Um, you know, the class I remember most was most impactful for me as an undergraduate was, um, was a class in which, you know, was first introduced to bell hooks and, and um, yeah, and mm-hmm. just a sort of impact on, on that work and how you don't have to be, you know, super theoretical. And um, But as far as feminism goes, I mean, I still claim feminism. I still claim, mm-hmm. you know, being a feminist. I see it as, like, um, part of my job that I love is educating people on what, feminism is undergraduates you know in the classroom um, because we still have no idea because we're still so shaped by the mass media um, and you know patriarchy sort of ongoing mission to represent feminism poorly Um, but I think I think like it's kind of like I think now I'm more comfortable with other people's not claiming feminism, you know, or instead uh-huh. of being like, but but you are, and like, here's why, like, just mm-hmm. sort of thinking about, well, why not, and are there being more open to maybe other product- productive ways to, like Kelly said, you know, to theorize or to talk about, you know, what's sort of happening. So not leaving it behind, but maybe more opening it up. Mm-hmm. That makes any sense. I'm yeah. I'm ready to leave some theorizing behind. I'm still very willing to claim feminist. In fact, I think I'm a stronger feminist now than I was before, but I'm broader. Right. And it's not, it's yeah. not a, it's not a, it doesn't start from a, a theory stance. It starts from doing. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I was reading like some, there's two of you, which I thought was interesting. Well, one, is it Emery, is it Petrov? He called it, mm-hmm. he called your book an evolving, emergent collective of women responsible for a crucial thread of contemporary Detroit hip-hop. But then the next one down was this Kathy Indoli. She says that the streets of Detroit were calling for a hip-hop revolution and women rose to the occasion. So evolving, emerging, emergent, or, you know, it's here and it's calling for a change in the tone and the voice and leadership. Okay, was it something that w- that's evolving and emergent, or was it something that had been there on the streets of Detroit and was calling for a revolution? I mean, uh, hip-hop right. has been here a long time. I, didn't, I don't think it was evolving or emerging. It's something that had been, but then it, it changed. It was changing in the leadership where it was changing where here these women were coming and saying, you know, no more misogyny. We have to do this. Right. So did you see it as, uh, you know, the evolving and emergent, to me, it's like, no, it's been here. It's changed. It's been here, but I think women's presence and hip-hop in Detroit today is very different than what it was, say, 10 years ago or oh, 20 definitely. years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, hip-hop here, some, some, right? and I mean, there's so many different scenes, even just around here, but, you know, the ones we were connected to most are more inclusive. They were trying to do something that hadn't been done here, you know. Um, people in our project, you know, we talked to participants would tell us how, a lot, a lot, you know, a lot of what young people were trying to do was just emulate what they saw in the commercial industry, right? Because that's the ticket to maybe getting signed to a major label or big money and success. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, I think the connections between, you know, the sort of social justice parts of the city and people and you know the music and culture stuff. I think they are, they are evolving. You know, by the time we wrapped up, we had Piper and Bryce Detroit and people talking about, you know, I'd never heard of the term, and I don't think anyone really had um, um, Bryce's term, entertainment justice, before. And here he is mm. saying, you know what, we're not going to sell out mm-hmm. to the money. It's like what we're doing here is new and different, and, it, and it's entertainment justice, and, you know, we're cult- about, all about cultural organizing. And, and so I think the way Piper has explained to us, some of those things were once more separate, and now there's some stronger ties forming between those communities. Oh, definitely. So I, I think that's one. Ten, sorry to interrupt. I didn't mean to. So 10 mm-hmm. years ago, when we started going to shows, 90, mm-hmm. like 99% of the people on the bill would be men, and there would mm-hmm. be entertainment just it wasn't there. Now when you look mm-hmm. at the bills – Miss Corona isn't the only one on there. Like she's a host, she's an artist, but now you see many more women and women DJs uh, getting on bills mm-hmm. with artists that you know used to be exclusively all about the guys. <clears throat> so I think there, uh, you know, and there, there's a yeah. Know, we haven't talked about Nick, like the big impact that Nick Nick Love Rhodes, you know, has had. Yeah, I was just about mm-hmm. to and people like her inside the riot, doing work right. in the community and with their music, and you know, oh yeah, they did their rights impact on more than one level in the city. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And they're all over. In the community festivals, they go on tour, uh, that kind of, you know, so, yeah, there's always been a women's presence, but I think that the conversation changed in the last 10 years. And it's not just Piper. It's all kinds of institutions that forge together. 
um, that change things. Like the AMC has a big role to play. The Ruth Ellis mm-hmm. Center, you know, the Essence's work there has a role to play. Detroit Summer had a role to play. All these kindred mm-hmm. spirit institutions uh, kind of grew together. Um, and so the, the seeds were always there, but they they grew in a very particular way. And I think now that we found hip hop is alive and well and some other organizations, the Seraphine Collective and whatever, there's more mm-hmm. conversation and more groups out there now that are having shows that are all about women. Um, all over the place. Um, so, you know, and also those things that you read on the jacket. So, mm-hmm. you know, people say whatever they want. That third person, <laughs> she, I don't mm-hmm. know if you know that lady. She just dropped her book, God Save the Queens. She's a journalist, and it got all mm-hmm. kinds of attention. Her book came out like three months before ours. And so we put She's her on there. She's the but, first person to write a history of women in, in hip-hop, in the commercial hip-hop space. That has mm-hmm. never been done before, so... Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's good mm-hmm. that she's on there. But, I mean, she wrote a pretty generic thing. The streets were calling for And I think Stephen Ward would be like, what? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, because Stephen saw it a very different way. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we were very lucky to have who we had review our book. Um, uh, we got some of the best people, and no one is better on Detroit and Jimmy and the Bucks than mm-hmm. Stephen. So we're mm-hmm. very lucky um, to have that that kind of encouragement all the way through. Do you see, you know, because I know, Rebecca, you did the thing on technology. We've got, you know, I mean, when you have, uh, like, uh, Hot Wax Hail and uh, Mm. DJs Mm -hmm. and all, I mean, you know, and they're all over. And if you think anybody, and that's why many people who have seen uh, DJ Remarkable, I mean, they've seen these people. They know they're from Detroit. And if you're really into house, and that, you know, you think Minx. of Detroit and you think of them. Kelly exactly. Hand. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's the same now that you're starting to see these, these and women. And you know what? Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I love that you brought that up because I think that's what initially was sort of the, the thing that propelled me to want to write about women and, you know, electronic dance music was when Dan Sickles' book came out, Techno Rebels. Um, he didn't mention any of those women. And I was just really frustrated, like, about that, that this was supposed to be the sort of history of Detroit techno. And I know Kellyhan and Minx were doing stuff back then because I'd go out and see them in the 90s, and they weren't in the book, and that really upset me. <laughs> so I was like, wait a minute, something's going on here, you know, with, it's, you know, what's going on here with women and, you know, electronic music and why aren't they getting represented? And, and that sort of was the initial thing, those things that got me inspired to mm-hmm. do work that's culminated in this women in hip-hop book now a different genre but right. same thing i think kelly's point was on when she says that now it's not as rare or you know surprising to see women in all these roles like i think there's even more women producing hip-hop today in detroit oh, than there was definitely. when we started our project you know eight years ago mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right in fact on instagram yesterday i went from watching stacy J, who's a, uh, a dj mm-hmm. to dj housewife mm-hmm. and they both had one-year-old kids with earphones on, on a, you know, making beats, you know, like proven. every time they make a beat, they're like, yeah, that one, you know, it was like, oh my God, one years old and they're already in this technology. They're going to be fluent in this technology by the time they're five. Wow. Wow. That wasn't happening 10 years ago, you know, so mm-hmm. this is, we've seen, so that to me is the most exciting thing. It's, it's not unusual to see women in the seats, but it is unusual to see producers and DJs get up on the stage and slip their stuff around and be right up there with the boys, and I, I love seeing that. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, they're just like fierce. You know, you just you just mm-hmm. love it. Um, I know that is it this summer, well, I don't know now, because I was talking with um, mm-hmm. DJ Disobedience, who's out of Kalamazoo, Michelle Johnson, mm-hmm. who, um, and she was saying that they were going to do, they had planned to do a tour around with these different DJs around Michigan. And I don't know oh, what happened great. with that. That was before, you know, uh, everything got shut down. But, um, you know, Kalamazoo, yeah. Detroit, you know. There's so yeah. many. These people rapid. are loyal. Stacey J came to California for my wedding six months pregnant to DJ. So these <laughs> women are all the way down for anything. Yeah. And, you know, to oh, your point, this idea of, like, mm-hmm. the importance of documenting things, I don't know, mm-hmm. right? What's the world going to be like? for a long time after this and mm-hmm. what's going to change and it just sort of makes I think what we did even more important you know because it might not be like that again for a little while or a long while and it might be different right. afterwards in some ways but my kind of goal with this book was after our preface where we introduce us is that we would sort of disappear mm-hmm. a little bit and the artists would come to life and I think we captured mm-hmm. that a lot um, because when you read the gender chapter, when you read the, you know, women wrecking, um, whatever, um, yeah. raps conventions, yeah. they, it's mm-hmm. all about them. Um, and mm-hmm. we tried to like, you know, of course we're fashioning the narrative, but it's them. It's their music, it's their lyrics, and they were generous at giving us rights to put the whole song in there. So it wasn't just like mm-hmm. a little snip here and there. Their voice comes through, and, and that's, I'm, that's what I think most proud of, is that this is showcasing the collaboration. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and and it's unusual what Beck and I did. There's not a lot of two people ethnographers out there. So that that, mm-hmm. that this is a collaboration is, is a contribution in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take our second break here. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the book and something that one of, a DJ told me that, that they're thinking about and see and get your take on that. So we'll be right back. Okay. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on collections by Michelle Brown. You know, I, I liked how you were saying, like, you wanted to do your purpose, and you just sort of wanted to, to take a step back. One of the things that um, I was talking to um, was DJ Disobedience, and she said that in part in doing this thing, that she was thinking about legacy. She was thinking about that next generation, and to that women would know that, you know, to, to take this this be up front, be on stage, own that mic. 
Did you hear the, uh, that come through as you were talking to mm. the different people, different women who, who you interviewed, who you talked to, and as you were part of the foundation, are they talking about that legacy for women rapping and hip-hop? Oh, I think so, just because that was, you know, mm-hmm. Piper's whole program, right? Going back to what you said mm-hmm. at the top of the hour, that, you know, we had the Queen Latifahs and MC Lights and stuff, and then what kind of happened? You know, the sort of, like, gangster rap movement came in, it became even more and more commercial, and then you kind of had, like, fewer women's voices, and then there's that idea of, like, the competitive nature of hip-hop compounded with, you know, women being taught to compete with each other, under patriarchy so there's only like one woman on top at any given time mm-hmm. and um you know piper piper saw that there was sort of more of a space for women in hip-hop in new york and and she was, has been very committed to and so has you know mahogany and the others in serving as sort of role models and mentors and always wanting to bring in younger people so the sort of initial group that was part of our project is now kind of you know like all things um, things sort of come to an end, they change. So they've they've kind of gone on and started off all their own things. And and there is this sort of younger generation now that Piper's working with and that some other these women are working with. Um, uh, I think there's there's a, a big commitment to, to mentorship and thinking about the next generation. So when Piper okay, when we okay. started Piper's this. Uh, working with the youth. You know, Kelly. Right. Piper's now a mama. She wasn't called Mm -hmm. Mama Piper when we met her. Now she is. And she's all about Mm -hmm. the youth. And we found hip hop as a younger generation. Like, Book Brown is probably the oldest artist. And she's mentoring those that are like coming up from Dime and other places. Like, Frankie O is probably 22, and she's a a Book Brown Mm -hmm. mentee. Alice in Wonderland is mentored by some other people that are connected to Piper. Um, and so they, they see Piper as the leader, um, and uh, Piper has been about legacy from day one. And I remember her whole thing, and people in our interviews would say, you know, Piper would just gently kick me onto the stage and then keep me there, you know. like um, mm-hmm. It was like a, a gentle nudge, but really a kick. Um, and it was like, claim that mic. Um, and she's brilliant at that. And, and she's and not she only was she's a jack of all eight. trades. She would take the mic. Piper mm-hmm. can rap. Piper can DJ, uh-huh. Piper can dance, can dance. She does it all. Uh-huh. But as part of the 5E gallery, they were really committed to having youth programming um, mm-hmm. to teach these skills to, to young kids. Teenagers. Right, so the Detroit Future Youth Kids, where they got all this tech stuff from mm-hmm. the stimulus money, would then come to the gallery um, and school would continue, you know, and you would constantly see a whole heap of dudes with Sakari in the corner, you know, arguing over whose rhymes were the best or people trying to make beats and, and women putting their art up all over the place. You know, all the Dilla Youth Days every year in honor of Jay Dilla. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And the communities, the community's commitment to Dilla Youth oh, Day, yeah. I think, has been really impactful. Yeah. Hundreds yeah. of people come to that, and then the performances at the end are just knock you out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who, I mean, who, I mean, she would love, she lives in, in Harlem, but, you know, she always talks mm-hmm. about it. Not one time I went and I took pictures of it, and um, you remember when they had that donut place, and I sent her some donuts from there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and she donuts. was just like, oh, this is wonderful, yeah. But, mm-hmm. uh, but she knows that's uniquely Detroit. I mean, you know, 
And she says, mm-hmm. oh, she said, that would get her to come to Detroit. Yeah. Uh, but she's never been able to make it here by this time. Who is the audience for your book? Isn't that a great question? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll go first, Becca, that you can. Okay. I think that this has the potential to be broader than a typical um, academic book. So in, for as far as this kind of book and ethnography, it would be academics, right? So scholars mm-hmm. interested in hip-hop ethnography, uh, anthropologists that teach you know, different kinds of collaborative methodologies, people in popular music studies, they would use it in their classrooms for advanced undergrads and graduate students. I would use this in a graduate class very easily. Like my neighbor, two doors down, he's a hip-hop scholar. He's at Michigan State. He's going to use it um, in the fall. He's teaching uh, a course. But anybody that's interested in hip-hop and uh, hip-hop undergrounds could, could read this book. It's not theory heavy, but it's not quite general either. And I do want to give a shout-out to our editor, Raina, and University of California Press, because um, they, I think University of California Press has a good vision. So they want you to do work that's, you know, theoretically sound and makes new contributions to these fields Kelly's talking about. But at the same time, they were really good about telling us, you know, when to pull back. And um, she very much was doing, you know, sort of helping us along with this, potential for a wider readership in mind. So I feel very fortunate that um, that's where our book is being published. Um, that's where um, well, we have Jeff Chang is one of our you know, series editors along with uh, Sam Aileen from UCLA. But also, you know, we were just so thrilled because the University of California Press is where, you know, Grace's The Next Revolution published, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of in that vein. And I think it makes sense, even when we're talking about, you know, generations and, you know, legacy around here, that um, I, thought, I thought it was fitting and really cool that they decided to publish our work, too. Right. And so people interested in women in hip-hop, it's a, it, this is the only book that exists that's all about women in the underground. There's nothing like it. So in terms of audience, people interested in, in women and music are going to find it interesting. And uh, I mean, really, there's been people working on women in hip-hop writing individual articles about, you know, the Queen Latifahs and MC Lights and Beyonce's and things like that, but nobody's done this kind of yeah, yeah. underground <laughs> community work. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it's going to appeal to community organizers as well. I don't think it's just going to be academics. Like AMC people would be interested in this book. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. Um, one of my one another person who I've talked to who I, I absolutely adore is Eric Darnell Pritchard, and he wrote a book called Fashioning Lies, and it's about um, and and the conversation that we had to do was was with literacy, and I often think about about Jimmy. I mean, Jimmy always comes up. And how often people, particularly when it comes to black literacy, when it comes to black queer literacy, that mm. people, I mean, I have been to things where, in fact, I went to a thing at Wayne State, and I heard a professor, African-American, who was like, if these kids just would learn how to, to speak mm. English, and, you know, they're doing this stuff. And one of the things that Eric was saying is like, we have, as a black community, we've always had our own language. We mm-hmm. Everything from where they thought they were teaching us the Bible and we were taking parts of it and using it 
as our language on how to find the ways we use quilts to tell stories. We've always had something that that one person could look at another and know. And even with hip-hop, there's something like you said, you didn't understand, but, you know, uh-huh. another person who wasn't involved with hip-hop could look at somebody and they would get it. You're in academia. Often mm-hmm. people you find, they don't recognize or appreciate the artistry, the brilliance of hip-hop. How do you see, are you hoping that if a young piper shows up at Oakland and when she does her, her presentation, in fact, recently when I was talking about these grants that we were doing, they had said, you know, well, we're open to, like, if somebody just wanted to send in a video of them doing a rap, you know, if they were explaining what they were doing, you know, to, to visualize it. Do you think that having this, your book in academia will help open minds, move us as not only as a community but as a society to where we recognize that there are different forms of expression and how it is expressed in hip-hop is every bit as valid as anything else in English literature, that this is an expression of life and it's telling stories and moving society? Can I start, Kelly? Oh, yeah. I totally love this question. Oh, my goodness. You know, it reminds me of why I do the work I do. So, mm-hmm. you know, in around late 70s, early 1980s, the British Center for Cultural Studies in Birmingham in the U.K., you know, sort of becomes the Center for Cultural Studies. And it's like this group of people who become academics who were a lot of whom were really working class people like, you know, Angela McRobbie or Stuart Hall, you know, who was um, black and just then talking about how, well, wait a minute, why aren't there books and why don't we study things like television and pop culture and music and subcultures and academia, you know? So they kind of started the trend of doing this work. And when I was an undergrad, I remember reading this guy, Dick Hebdige's book called, um, oh my gosh, now I can't remember subcultures? the title. Yeah, subcultures, the meaning of style, cool meaning of style. And I was like, whoa, people are writing about this, right? I felt like this was my life that I was seeing in a book. And that's sort of when I knew I wanted to do this for a living. Um, And I've read a lot about how it is that these people did things like, you know, legitimize popular culture in in the academy and then, you know, Mm -hmm. by extension, like society in, in general. So I think it is it is super important to have these cultures and hip hop in particular represented in the academy and in books on academic presses. I think that does legitimize it, um, but not just legitimizing it for you know for the sake of it, but it mm-hmm. does do some of that work that you don't need you know you don't have to always be high theory to do the the theorizing and the thinking about the how how does that you know pop culture and media it's easy to just be like oh it's just tv it's just celebrity culture like whatever it doesn't really have an impact so i think it takes people who have the the time and the ability to 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 step back you know like us and to to make these connections and to show well what kind of work is this doing you know for the people involved for society more generally um things like you know when we enjoy things like that that's like the politics of pleasure you know like what else is is going on when that's happening and and what are the kinds of things that we we tend to dismiss like a lot of the Mm -hmm. pop culture that's seen as low culture was like stuff that 
women were more interested in, you know? So let's recognize, you know, the sexism that's going on here or how it is that hip-hop was seen early on as, like, a fad, you know? Like, oh, whatever, this is just going to come and go, right? It isn't, like you said, or it's not really music-making. Well, now, you know, it took a while, but, but now, I mean, it's synonymous with popular music, you know? All pop music, mm-hmm. for the most part, is made the way hip-hop has been being made for 50 years on, you know, computers now and like you know drum machines and synthesizers and all of that so long so, winded answers sorry <laughs> i love your question too but i want to just be specific about the baby pipers because i've had uh-huh. that happen um i usually uh-huh. what I, I used to do is take mahogany jones uh video um the skin uh-huh. deep and i would compare it to iggy azalea's pussy which if you've never seen that, you haven't missed anything. Uh-huh. And I say, okay, what's the difference? And they're like, oh, my God, substance. Why aren't we seeing this? I'm like, isn't that a good question? So Thank then, you. so I, before the book, we start with the visuals and the music. And so I think when you, our book will bring those visuals to life and will give students tools that, that, that aren't out there. Uh, but the music itself, you have to teach the music with the book or it's, it's not the same. It's not as contextual. So I, and last summer I taught a public speaking class with nine people in it, and Super MC and Corona came to my class the last day. We had a cipher for the final. And there's a young man in there named Rakim, he's 19, who is now with Super MC recording music at Titus because they bonded in my classroom. So it's those kinds of things that happen when you bring people that would never come into a classroom, Mm -hmm. who would never meet these white kids that are freshmen trying to learn how to speak. They're busting rhymes as a way to teach them literacy, and that just gave them more of an education than any textbook public speaking class could. I love that, that that the fact, you know, to bring, to see that, you know, because there is a part. Yes, you want to recognize that this is part of a community. It is a language within the community. It is a culture. It's, it's, it's every bit as valid, but also to recognize what can be co-opted. Because if you look at that, that mm-hmm. Iggy Azalea, and then you look mm-hmm. at, you know, it gives you a totally different perspective and a respect. And so mm-hmm. it's not about, you know, to just sort of do it while like, oh, well, hey, I could rap and, you know, <laughs> and, and do it. No, it's not like about co-opting this culture for mm-hmm. materialistic gain. It's uh-huh. about understanding that. And I think that that, you know, that is so powerful that when you, when you said that, it was like, yes, yes. You know? <laughs> that, that, is, uh, that is just like a... That is wonderful that you're bringing them into the classroom. And I think that, it, you know, and even there's a part of a generation of African-American people also who have been, you know, you can be, like, told so much that this is the way you have to do it and this is what's right mm. and this is what's wrong to then to where we can see that there are some generations that don't see that this is an evolution of our culture, this is a continuation of our culture, mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. uniqueness, because you have lived under that yoke of, well, you've got to talk like this, you've got to be like this, the only mm-hmm. thing that's right is that. And it's important that it, in helping us reclaim who we are, you know, there's nothing wrong with being black. It's beautiful. It's not, and this is an mm-hmm. extension of we've always been such creative Great people, and, you know. I often tell people I went to the Dusab once with some Detroit summer kids, 
in mm-hmm. Chicago, and we went in and we looked at this picture, and we had a wonderful docent. And he said to these kids, "What do you see in this picture?" And this guy said, "Like a, uh, just slavery." And he said, "No, you see, look at that. Those are craftsmen. Those are artisans. Those are the people who built this country, mm-hmm. and it changed how they." thought about that whole thing so to say that oh well if someone is into hip-hop no you're not just a gangster if you're a girl mm-hmm. you're not you know you're not going to be called a hoe or a bitch that this is what's happening and these are women who are defining it and helping build community so when I did this I was teaching on the floor of our department um, and the art and arts history department shares that floor with us and their chair is one of the most head up his ass guys in the world He's a British guy, so I knew this was going to make noise, so I invited him. And he was like, what would I, what would I do there? I'm like, well, I'm serving Gus's fried chicken because I brought chicken. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay. So he came, and at the end of it, he came to me the next day, and he said, I had no idea that, that hip-hop was improvisational. I'm like, what? Don't wow. you know where it comes from? Wow. He's like, I had no idea that people rhymed like that without a script. That wow. guy was brilliant. And I said, well, mm-hmm. first of all, she was a woman because <laughs> he thought Corona was a guy. Um, and, then, and, and then he, was, he just was like, oh, wow, I have to rethink some things. I'm all, thank you. That's why I invited him because I knew he was going to complain about it and have things to say about it. Um, and it's, it's people like deans and whatever that need to see this and see the intelligence and literacy that's wrapped up in it. Because let me tell you, these kids mm-hmm. that have never seen a cipher were scared to death until they – were made to feel comfortable, and then they realized how much skill it takes to be able to do this. It's not just anyone can do it. Well, um, we're coming to the end. Um, where can people, nerds like me and others, mm-hmm. <laughs> when will your book be available and where will they find it, or is it something that is only going to go through academia? No, no, no. no, oh, no. no. There's ways mm-hmm. to get it. So, mm-hmm. I think it Amazon, comes out June 6th. <laughs> yeah, June 4th or 6th. It'll be on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to email you a coupon for 30. This press gave us coupons that are 30% off, and we're emailing mm-hmm. those coupons to everyone. You can go mm-hmm. directly to the press right now and pre-order, but on, in June you can get it in Amazon. But mm-hmm. the coupon has to be used on the press's website, University okay. of California Press. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just want to you know, mention that because that's how you can get the 30% off. And also some people have contacted me and said, you know, I don't know. I'm not really feeling Amazon right now. How else can I get it? So you can go okay. directly for the press. It's actually going to save you money, and it probably saves them some money too. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And, and, will it, and will it be at a local bookstore like the source? We hope so. We're going to contact hoping. them and ask to do a reading and hope that she'll oh. sell it. I want to No, and, you know, we had a, a event scheduled for the, at the Wright Museum where we were going to, you know, have performers mm-hmm. and and do reading, and, you know, right now that's been put on hold, so hopefully people mm-hmm. can look out for that in the future. Yeah, I hope we do it in January when people are starting to normalize again uh, because we are, you know, we're going to bring people, and by then Mahogany will have had her baby, and she'll be able to come back and perform with me. And, yeah, so we'll let we'll you know when we have baby. that. Have her baby. <laughs> so hey, when we do know. this, we're going to let you know, but... Um, Thank you, you for having us. Ve- this was lovely. You seem to be very experienced about being with people with babies. So, hey, why wait till January? <laughs> <laughs> you can just walk her out there on stage and be in the ready, you know? That's right. So, okay. Yeah. 
I want to thank you both. I I have enjoyed this, Kelly. You know, now oh, me I too. Have... I miss you, Michelle. We have to get together. I haven't seen you in ten years. I know. We definitely have to get together. And now, Rebecca, hey, you're part of the crew. Hey, you know, I'm coming. That's right. It takes yeah. two. That's our motto. So you know, that's you get right. Both. It does take two. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> thank does. you so but, uh, much, Michelle. I want to thank my guests, the authors of Women Rapping Revolution, Hip Hop Community Building in Detroit. Oakland University professors Kelly Hay and Rebecca Ferruja. Seven years in the making, their fieldwork in writing this book shows us how crucial it is for us to engage with outside cultures with a strong level of cultural competency and authenticity. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on Google Play Music, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.